Hey folks, if you enjoyed our episode last week with Dr. Marcella Azevedo about issue one and reproductive rights, and you want us to keep bringing you more great shows like that, especially when the stakes are high like they were last Tuesday, please hit the subscribe button in your app. And if you can, throw us a few bucks through Patreon. You can navigate to our Patreon site at prognosisohio.com. Thanks. They looked at this and they're like, hold on a second. So you're forecasting out that it's going to take us this many months to get vulnerable individuals vaccinated at the same level as those who are less vulnerable? Like, that's just unacceptable. I'm Dan Skinner. This is Prognosis Ohio. And that was Dr. Ayas Hyder of The Ohio State University. On today's episode, I talk with Ayas and his colleague Gavin French of Columbus Public Health about the so-called VaxCash program, which paid Central Ohioans to get vaccinated against COVID-19 beginning back in 2021. In our conversation, we talk about the program, the benefits and criticisms of incentives in public health, and what French and Heider learned from their research about the program, which they published with a host of colleagues in the Ohio Journal of Public Health. This episode is part of our ongoing series in collaboration with the Ohio Public Health Association and the Ohio Journal of Public Health. You can read the article we're discussing today for free, and we've linked to it at prognosisohio.com. Okay, here's my conversation with Dr. Ayaz Haider and Gavin French about the VaxCash program. I have to admit, reading this piece brought me back a bit to a rush of memories from 2021, just as I experienced in my recent conversation with former ODH director Amy Acton and going back to that period, you know, the 2020 and then 2021, it's kind of amazing when you reflect on, on just how much we've been through as a state. But let's start by refreshing our memory a little bit. What was the Vax Cash program and what sparked it at Columbus Public Health? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest things is we started the Vax Cash program July 6th of 2021. And that was, I think, really the phase of the pandemic where we started to see things shift on the vaccination front. All of the previous from December 2020 until really um, spring of 2021, we were still in that emergency phase of having the new vaccines and really trying to get as many vaccines in arms as possible. Columbus Public Health ran a mass vaccination drive through clinic at the Ohio State Fairgrounds Celeste Center, uh, where at the height of our vaccination efforts, we were averaging about 3,000 uh, vaccinations a day, um, which was something that we were really proud of, one of the largest in the country, and that was a lot of work. And that was really those early adopters on the vaccines, the folks that were beating down our doors when we didn't have the supply trying to get in and get those vaccinations. In about May, I think Dr. Hyder sent Dr. Roberts an email with some data um, that really showed the disparities in the vaccination uptake um, in Columbus and, and Franklin County residents. And for us, that was really the alarm of, you know, seeing those wide disparities and vaccination uptake and us transitioning from that phase of we have uh, not enough vaccine and a bunch of people that want it to transitioning to that next phase of the folks who may have access issues and trying to really figure out how we adapt going from a large scale vaccination model um, and transitioning to meeting the people where they are on, on the vaccination front. It's amazing how fast that switch went when now that I think about it, because I remember very clearly 
how am I going to get a vaccine? How am I going to get a vaccine? And literally looking at maps and being like, where is this town that I'm finding online? And can I drive, should I drive three hours to get a vaccine? And then if you waited a couple of weeks, all of a sudden, it seemed like we couldn't get anybody to get a vaccine and there was a surplus. So like that, that, that must've been real whiplash for, for people doing this kind of work. Yeah. I think, you know, back then what was going through my mind was accessibility. And I don't mean accessibility in terms of, can I get there in a car? Um, not everybody has a car. Yeah. I was extremely privileged just to, to right. do it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I started thinking about accessibility much more, you know, broadly. Is it open at the time that you have time to take time off work? Are you able to bring your kids along? Because not everybody can, you know, have that childcare. And so when we think about accessibility from these, you know, spatial and these non-spatial factors, you really need partnerships like what the Vax Cash set up, where they had the financial incentives, they had locations that were accessible, that were open at different hours, and they moved them around, which I think was just, you know, very innovative um, of them to be able to do that. So it's, it's, it, was, it was a really um, fulfilling. My sense is that VaxCash wasn't the first choice necessarily of an approach, you know, on the part of Ohio's public health leaders, including a public health. And, and, and I want to ask, you know, what did our state's public health departments and other entities try before they turned to this innovative model? Yeah, so I think, again, in those initial phases of the vaccine rollout, it was uh, getting as many vaccines into arms as quickly as you could, those mass vac sites, uh, to quickly transitioning the model to going neighborhood-based interventions. And one of the things that we tried in Columbus, and I know across the country, public local public health departments really worked on, was getting as many sites as possible. Uh, and so at some point, we would look at our map in those early days prior to VaxCash, and we said, you know, we've hit every neighborhood. We have been to every neighborhood, and then we didn't see people showing up. They weren't coming to get the vaccines. And so for us, it was trying to figure out what would be the next best approach. Uh, once we went through those, you know, what we now term as whack-a-mole um, vaccine clinics, where they would pop up for a day, shut down, and move to the next neighborhood, um, to us, what we were looking at is that we had offered vaccine sites in every census tract in every neighborhood, but the folks weren't showing up to that. And so trying to look at that and figure out, working very closely with Dr. Hyder at that data to figure out what that next phase would be outside of the whack-a-mole, set up a clinic, shut it down, move to the next site. And so working with Dr. Hyder and, and, and all of his amazing data and all of the mapping that helped us understand where the people were, um, where some of those community sites were, where some of the neighborhoods were, to try to pinpoint how we could do that next phase that got us to VaxCash. You know, what was really, I think, fulfilling as well in, in this partnership was that we built this loop where we were learning from the community and feeding that information back into the mapping, back into the analytics, and then producing new insights. And so, you know, a quick example is where there was an equity form that was set up by the health departments and they would identify potential locations who are willing to host a vaccine clinic. And so we put that information into the map and saw, okay, 
what's the vaccine uptake rate right now? What is it by race and ethnicity? What is the social vulnerability index in this area? Who are the providers nearby? And so if that turned out to be a viable place, then we would pass that information back to the neighborhood teams um, at, at Columbus Public Health, and they would use those maps and have conversations with those on the ground. And I think one of the reasons this worked really well is that we didn't say you must go here. We just gave a potential list of, of places because data is only data and only goes so far. And so you really need the people on the ground, the patient navigators, the community health you know, liaisons, the community health workers to, to make sense of that data and then improve that analysis. We're going to turn more to the innovative nature of this in, in a bit, but I, I do just want to note, I mean, it strikes me that this is another example where I'm guessing almost nobody knew the thoughtfulness the you know the kind of dynamic uh, data community feedback loops you're talking about I certainly didn't know and like I hang out with public health people a lot so you know I I think it's it's another example of where a little bit more awareness about just how much thoughtfulness and hard work goes into our public health responses could really uh, be helpful to us yeah no absolutely and and I have to hand it to our public health leaders. Um, both at the local level, at the county level, and at the state level, um, because they looked at this and they're like, oh, ho hold on a second. So you're forecasting out that it's going to take us this many months to get vulnerable individuals vaccinated at the same level as those who are less vulnerable? Like, that's just unacceptable, right? And And we see that, you know, like, you look back at the informortality gap that we have. I mean, you just extrapolate it out. It's going to take decades to close that gap. But here we had a chance to do something and, and really mobilize and close that gap or try to close that gap, which, which I, have, I have to hand it to the leadership that, that they really came through. I was just going to add to Dr. Heider's point. I mean, when he sent our health commissioner, Dr. Mashika Roberts, that data that really showed how many months it was going to take, she immediately charged our team. Um, we we're in an incident command structure. So to come up with the most innovative ways to get folks vaccinated in a safe and quick manner and meet them where they were. And so it was due uh, whatever you think and bring every idea to me, nothing's off the table to figure out what it's going to take to get there. And so I think that having that real live data from Dr. Hyder was extremely beneficial and working with our community organizations and our faith-based places and our neighborhood-based sites to use that data and to say, okay, this neighborhood has uh, one of the lower vaccination uptake rates. Where's a trusted site in this neighborhood? Um, you know, where are some places that people would feel safe going? Because we know in our communities that uh, a healthcare institution is not always the most trusted place to receive care. And so meeting people where they were um, was very important to us. Your comment about meeting people where they are brings me to a point where I, I think I need to eat a little crow, as they say here, and, and talk about incentive programs and, and my response to them at the time. But also, I think there was, you know, I was not alone at this moment. Um, you know, I was really critical, for example, and, and now admit that I didn't fully understand the logic of the Vaximilian idea that was going around and received quite a bit of national attention as well. 
have this intense dislike of lotteries. And when I, when I heard that we were going that route, it took me a while to understand how this might be different. But there was so much disinformation going around at that time that they eventually realized that we needed, we needed incentives, that we needed to address this. And now I look at your, your data and show that you know, really what was happening was that gaps and disparities were being closed. And that it's just incredibly impressive. So even while intuitively I'm like, vaccines are wonderful things. Everybody should just go get them. Like that's such a naive approach to public health that I had to learn in watching this take place. But but I wonder where how you think about this as well. I mean, are you just so focused on the data that you know you just let go of the idea that like that it might be weird that we need to incentivize people to get something that's a net good for them, or is this just how public health works and it, is this just what it means to meet people where they are? So I think for us at Columbus Public Health, we never saw it as an incentive program. Uh, that's not what it was created for. It was a lot different than things that Ohio did with Vaximillion, and we saw other states do the lottery-based systems that to us were incentives. Uh, those had um, been created and started before we started Vax Cash, and so we had seen that there was no significant uptake uh, from those programs. And so us, it was really, again, going back to that data, but then the community conversations, trying to understand uh, what people's hesitancies were. Um, was it that they just didn't trust this new vaccine from a new and scary disease, or was it much longer historical, traditional mistrust of healthcare and public health systems, or was it the everyday barriers? And so that's really what we found is that a lot of the folks were concerned that, you know, normal side effects that you get with a vaccine would prevent them from going to work the next day. And so they chose that they needed a paycheck for their family. And so they weren't going to risk having to take the next day off. And so that was really one of those, one of the driving factors that we heard from people in the community is that I may have to take a day off to go get a vaccine because the clinics are only open during my workday. I may not have access to transportation. I may have you know, normal side effects that you would expect from a vaccine the next day and not feel well enough to go to work and have to take off. So for us, it really wasn't an incentive. It was to address people's needs and concerns financially as to why they wouldn't be able to get that vaccine. Yeah, I, I agree with everything Gavin has said. And, you know, I've looked at some of the studies that have come out since then because they've looked at analyses from multiple incentive, financial incentive programs uh, that happened during the, the height of the pandemic. And I agree, I, I don't think they were sustainable as much as we would have liked. It was a great idea at the time. And I think when I think back to it, everybody was throwing everything at this problem that they could. So I don't think they were bad ideas. I think they were good ideas and they worked for when they did. But something like the Vax Cash program, which was really grounded in community-engaged work, is something that we should look forward to in the future. We will have more pandemics. Will we try to do Vaximillion again? I'm sure someone will. But I think if we can scale up these kinds of innovative programs and apply them to other types of things like screenings or you know, preventative screenings or other things, then I think that's much more sustainable and you get a much more bang for your buck. 
So the critics at the time, you know, talking about where this money is coming from, kind of seeing this as a, a just a, a pure transfer of funds of some sort. I mean, the Vax Million was funded mostly through federal money, and that produced a whole different conversation. What did you learn from the reaction to the program? Yeah, so I think for us, we had um, a lot of positive feedback. We were one of, we believe, the first in the country that did this um, Vax Cash. I know our health commissioner, Dr. Roberts, um, did a town hall with staff in the White House and the the COVID-19 team at the time to present this information. And we saw across the country, other states and local health departments start to pick up something similar to Vax Cash. Prior to starting it, we had worked with our Medicaid managed care plans to have those conversations about what an appropriate value would be and what they had seen. Because for a long time, our managed care plans have incentivized things like wellness checks or, or child routine childhood vaccines and trying to figure out that sweet spot of what would um, move the needle on someone going to get their vaccine and what that dollar amount would be. So there was a lot of work prior to um, working with groups that had done this previously for other interventions. But then again, once we had the data to show that things in the live real-time data, because again, this program was created to be six weeks. It was to get your first dose and your second dose. It ended up lasting a much longer time than that. And, you know, we thought when we first started, it was, you know, oh, it may work. You know, we had the data, we had the support, we had the community intelligence, but trying to figure out if it would work. That first day, that first clinic on July 6th, we ran out of the gift cards that we thought we would have for the whole six weeks. And so, um, you know, we had the, again, the data that supported that it was working. We had the community feedback because we still continue to see, you know, told my brother, my sister, my aunt, my uncle to come get their vaccine. And as the weeks went on, we continued to multiply the amount of people through word of mouth who had felt safe, who had felt trusted, who got the vaccine and then and then got the uh, Vax Cash gift card. Yeah, six weeks is an incredibly short period of time. And in a way, that's just the beginning to get the word out about a program. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the lessons that I learned as, as a researcher is really about the value of doing these kinds of partnerships. And so we took these lessons learned um, that are mentioned in, in the paper and now are applying them to working with the Pathways Hubs across Ohio as part of a grant from the CDC for community health workers and building resilience in communities. And so scaling that up to community health workers and the Pathways Hubs uh, across Ohio has been really humbling and it wouldn't have been possible without the lessons learned. I think our, uh, and so this is a grant to the, to the Ohio Department of Health and it's being managed by Health Impact Ohio. And I think at the state level, they saw the value of these kinds of partnerships where the data at the local level is being translated once that access has been given. And so now they've really understood that and and it's operationalized by going to other things that community health workers are working on, such as those screenings, such as, you know, uh, chronic diseases and infant mortality and other things. So, I, I have to hand it again to our public health leadership in, in taking that leap of faith that if we build it, they will come. And, and, and I think it, it, it's working. And I just hope that we're better prepared the next time another public health emergency comes along. 
What I think we did have one with the Central Ohio measles outbreak at the end of 2022. And uh, as we started to see those cases and the, and the the local transmission, the first person I called was Dr. Hyder. And I said, help. (laughs) We've already worked together. We already have a lot of this mapping and data done. We don't know what it looks like for MMR vaccine coverage. And we don't know what it looks like for measles. So, you know, very quickly, we had the outbreak, fortunately, uh, got it over with in, in a little under two months. But again, it was the relationship and the partnership between academics and, and local public health that was able to help we, help us quickly identify some of our risks and, and, and to be able to mitigate those. There's a real lesson in this. You've, you've mentioned a few times, Gavin, that I sort of you sent your data to the public health department, which is a wonderful translational moment. We're always looking for mo- more moments and opportunities like this in academia. And it's not something that people even think to do, I've noticed. They just kind of will sometimes sit with really important information that they, they have. So that's a really important lesson and hopefully one of the lessons that will endure from covid You've both already mentioned that VaxCash was pretty innovative in its merging of real-time data collection with on-the-ground community intelligence, right? This idea that you were you had feedback loops and you were constantly able to change up what you were doing as a result. I'm sure many of our listeners may not know the literature or the kind of best practices. Why is this novel? I mean, in some ways, this seems obvious. I don't want to say <laughs> that your work is obvious, but... It, it really is powerful in its simplicity. I, I think it is too obvious, right? That we often, you know, I always tell my kids sometimes, you know, they're like, well, I'm like, they didn't do something. Like I asked them to do something, they didn't do it. I'm like, you know, common sense is not very common. And, and I think it really comes back to that. But beyond that, I think it's, um, it's the uh, partnership, that and it's the maturity of that partnership so this wasn't the first time that i've worked with columbus public health you know i was hired to the translation data analytics um, initiative at ohio state and when i first got there they i said what is translation data analytics and they're like "Uh, we have some idea but we don't we have no idea how it is applied in public health so my past eight years that i've been in ohio has been trying to figure out what that means in practice in public health and what i've you know settled on is that it really is engagement analytics and translation but all in one go so we don't train our public health students in just the analytics or just the engagement or just the translation we really need to change the way we do workforce development and education and training in public health and break these silos between public health and healthcare and social care because the common denominator is the people is the public and i think we need to change the way we we do a lot of things so i think this was innovative because even though it's so obvious, it it just hadn't been done. And and once you get over that, you know, and like they say, like never let a crisis go to waste. And and I think that there was a little bit of that too. So that's that 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 that's been my takeaway. Yeah. And I think for us in local public health on the ground, we sometimes give academia and research a bad rap in that a lot of the things that are published 
yes, they're good. Yes, we could use them, but they are not presented in a way that we could actually operationalize and use them in our day-to-day work. And I think that was what was a lot different with this, and it was innovative. We were in the midst of the crisis of a century. And if Dr. Hyder was sending charts and graphs and tables and all those things, we didn't have time to review those to understand what they were to figure that out. And so having the way that he translated this data in a way that we could actually use day in and day out was extremely beneficial for us and something that unfortunately it may seem obvious we don't get in other ways in public health. Yeah, one of the, you know, to give a real example of what that looked like. So I had done some back of the envelope calculations and set up this mathematical model to see how long would it take if we vaccinate, if we to reach what the current levels of vaccination uptake that was going on in high, you know, SVI versus low social vulnerability index uh, neighborhoods. And it was uh, an interactive dashboard that our public health colleagues could move things around about assumptions, about different parameters, and see in front of them the graphic and in simple text, actually translating those graphics into sentences that they can then convey to the health commissioners. And so I think we need to get better at using the technologies that are out there, like AI and other things, to really make our models and our data accessible and and useful for, for public health decision makers. And we still have a long way to go in that. It's nice to hear somebody who's not afraid of AI and actually wants to figure out what it could do for us, right? <laughs> So my understanding is that there there was an initial plan, but like all initial plans, you know, you need to adjust as you go. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about changes and how you adapted, and and what if anything needed to be reworked or rethought as you learned more from this dynamic model? So I think in the beginning, you know, it was set to be a six week program uh, that was you know to get folks its first dose and then to, to get their second dose and these neighborhood based interventions with the data that we had and then again the community intelligence we initially went with 10 uh, vaccination sites, so two per day, five days a week. Those clinics ran from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., which was a lot different for what our staff had been working. And so five of those sites were what we considered a neighborhood-based site, so mostly um, Columbus City rec centers. And then five of the other sites were really religious or cultural-based sites. So we wanted to have places that were all neighborhood-based, but that you know some people may not feel comfortable going to a place of faith. Some people may only be comfortable going to a neighborhood rec center. And so again, these were non-traditional ways to deliver healthcare and vaccinations that we have now utilized outside of the COVID pandemic for routine childhood immunizations, you know, yearly flu and COVID vaccines to deliver, again, meeting the people where they are and where they're in a trusted institution or a trusted place where those leaders can also share the message of public health and the importance of vaccinations and are also probably your best messengers better than public health professionals of getting folks there and getting their vaccines. And so because we saw the success really in those first two weeks 
uh, we decided that we were going to have to extend it. And we kept extending it and extending it and extending it. Uh, So we started July 6th of 2021. And I believe we stopped in March of 2022, which was supposed to be a six-week program because of the success of it. Now, extending requires budgets as well. So, I mean, was there any difficulty justifying the expense of the program? So fortunately, we had a lot of COVID relief dollars that were coming through the feds that were passed through to local health departments or or, or localities or also state pass-through dollars that made it so that we were able to uh, make this program successful. You know, we would like to, in a perfect world, continue something like this for routine childhood immunizations, which you see on a significant decline for a variety of reasons. But unfortunately, those those dollars have dried up at the federal and the state levels and it's not something that we could continue. And so that's something that, you know, we would hope that uh, lawmakers would see the data and see how it works for this and how we could use that for other routine business or in future emergencies should they arise. Well, we have quite a few lawmakers who tend to listen to this show. So, hey, folks, uh, we we have data for you. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the ways that we adapted is not just having that community intelligence be fed back into it, but having regular meetings with, you know, the team at Columbus Public Health and other entities who we're working with, um, having weekly meetings. You know, and, and what that allowed us to do with the operations teams there and with the community teams there is for them to give us an idea of what's changing on the ground so we could adapt. So one example is where we had this dashboard set up that was behind a password, right? Because these are sensitive data and they're not necessarily publicly available information. But then when patient navigators for One Health Department wanted to have access to those data, we quickly pivoted to a public dashboard that they could access in a very, you know, just go to the website and it's there rather than setting up a password and account and going through all of that. So it was really humbling that we had that partnership with the health departments that they were willing to tell us, okay, now we're changing to this model or now we're changing to this way. And so getting them the information in the way they needed it, when they needed it, was something that we could pivot. And I often tell people that technology really isn't the barrier. It's the will behind the political will or the financial will um, to, to do something with that. And I think that worked out really well here. Well, hopefully we can harness the lessons learned from this. Uh, I just want to thank you for writing this piece and also to your co-authors. Uh, there's quite a few of you, and uh, but I, I have not mastered the interviewing skills to talk to like six or seven <laughs> people yet. Uh, but I thank you for joining me and talking with us about this. Uh, we'll be sharing the article out again to listeners. Check it out. It's on our website. Uh, Dr. I.S. Hyder and Gavin French, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. This episode was produced by me, Dan Skinner. I received social media and production support from Nathaniel Powell. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. As always, be in touch if you have ideas for guests or topics or ways we can improve the show. Speaking of improving the show, to do that, we need your support. Consider chipping in just a few bucks through our Patreon site, which you can link through to from prognosisohio.com. But even if you aren't able to contribute financially, please just give a nice rating to our podcast in your app and tell your friends about what we do. It really helps. Okay, be well and thanks for listening.